0: Hi, I'm Dan Cottrell, editor of Rugby Coach Weekly. You're about to jump into one of our podcasts. If you want to find out more about this podcast and also all of the great content, drills, activities, games and advice on the website, then go over to www.rugbycoachweekly.net. I hope you enjoy the podcast
1: be the best rugby coach you can be welcome to rugby coach weekly podcast with head coach Dan Cottrell where you learn hints and tips from the rugby coaching community let's get started hello
0: and welcome to rugby coach weekly podcast with me Dan Cottrell uh, in today's podcast I am very delighted to welcome Pete Druitt welcome to the pod Pete thanks a lot Dan great to see you and uh Looking forward to chatting. Good, well, I, uh, I've i known Pete since 1988, <laughs> <laughs> and there's old jokes since uh, the age of six or something like that. Uh, <laughs> when I was at exter, a student, and Pete had uh, just come back to start lecturing. Um, so he's just a few years older than me, Though <laughs> he does, of course, look younger than me, but luckily we're hidden behind uh, the podcast, so you can't actually see us on screen. Uh, at at this moment so Pete's had um, a quite interesting and varied journey through coaching um, at quite a lot uh, at national level so Pete just give us a quick uh, introduction to your life
1: in coaching rugby. Wow blimey here we go Um, (laughs) I suppose yeah it's 40 years worth really because I started life as a physical education teacher Um, out of St Luke's College Exeter Um, obviously teaching and coaching at that time uh, and learning my trade Um, and then incredibly I finished playing in 1992 and straight away uh, I got a job um, working with England and I was so lucky because initially it was working with the sort of students and England students and what happened? Well, there were about eight of us running England rugby at the time, and all the other guys, people like Chalky White, Don Rutherford, were just so experienced. And there was me <laughs> learning my trade, and just wow, they accelerated my progress. It was fantastic. Um, so I had. Well, in the end, it was 16 years with England, um, different roles, um, sort of finishing up the last five, six, seven years, can't remember now really, um, managing and working with um, England on 21s, as it was then, which is now the under-20s. Uh, and But my it was funny, the way uh, Don worked it. he got us during the year, so my role was what they call National Player Development Manager, so that was for everybody, all the way through to the senior level. Um, and then, let's say, during Six Nations and World Cups, I, for those particular six years, concentrated on um, England 21s. Although, you know, I worked with the Sevens, I worked with the National Squads, um, <laughs> an A team, etc. I don't, I don't know if that's what you're asking, really.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, and no, then... no, no. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just wanted the journey. I mean, just as... To... To go back and uh, for some people, they will never have heard of Chalky White or Don Rutherford. I mean, these uh, these are, I mean, that's fine because these are great names from the past. So Don Rutherford was, uh, what was his role?
1: Yeah, so Don was, um, I suppose he was basically director of rugby. Let's call it that for the whole of England rugby. He was more than that, though. I mean, he was an amazing guy um and uh he's a saint Louis college man extra man actually i think that's the only reason i got the job because all the other guys were from loughborough but anyway (laughs) uh that's another story and um and don wrote a lot of books he wrote a heck of a lot of stuff and he was way ahead of his time but much of that was done in the amateur era because 92 was still amateur the game hadn't gone professional but don had all these professional ideas and the way he wanted things to move um so he was brilliant, I mean, outstanding, because, you know, he played for England in the British Lions, you know, right. had an incredible pedigree. And then Chalky White, well, you know, Leicester of the late 70s, early 80s were the best team in the country. Chalky should have coached England uh, in many people's opinion. And, you know, I was so lucky. He, he mentored me, actually. And wow, what a mentor. I, I tell you, I, I owe him so much, so much.
0: So uh, quite often people will say, uh, what a guy, what a mentor. Yeah. And uh, we will say, that's fantastic. So what made him so effective? What, what made a difference to you in the way that he approached mentoring and coaching? What, yeah, what were well, the key takeaways for you?
1: Yeah, no, I'll tell you the key t- takeaway. Um, Chalky always had another question to ask, always pushed you to your limit of thinking. And for me, uh, you know, being a little back, um he pushed me to understand forward play you know so he challenged you in areas that you perhaps felt a little bit uncomfortable with and 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 that really helped us because we came not necessarily you know good in those areas but much better in those areas so um he was very demanding so when you actually achieve something so let's say you know the senior coaching award or level four five whatever it was at the time you know you felt you'd really been put Put under it and questioned, and under the microscope, and you know we would be up at three o'clock in the morning still talking rugby, and it'd be really getting you. Uh, that's just an example, and then um, j- just his manner and his professionalism. Uh, what do I mean by that? Just just the constant way. I mean, you know, from from the way he dressed to the way he he uh, managed people, talked to people. Um, yeah, I don't know if I'm describing it as well as I'd like to, but he was very special.
0: Yeah, and I, th- I feel that, that uh, a lot of it there is not just about his knowledge, but the way that he interacted with you and um, got the best out of you. Now, would you say that he would, uh, and some of these other coaches, are they just one person or are they many people reflecting the people that are in front of them? So if for you, uh, maybe as the, as the little back, as you call it, Yeah. Um, he would be one manner and then maybe with a, a big lumping forward, uh, he would be in a different, different way.
1: What do you no, be I don't think so. Well? Not really. Chalky was Chalky. You know, he, he challenged us all, whoever we were. And in many ways, as you know, at the elite end of coaching, um, you know, there, there's, there, there are certain behaviors and certain expectations. It's a pressurized environment. And, you know, you've got to be pretty tough to, to, to manage it, have a thick skin and uh, be prepared to keep challenging yourself. Keep asking, is there a better way of doing this? And no holes barred. And, you know, when, when you're in a, I mean, Clive Woodward used to call it the war room, as you know, and, you know, in that room, people were would challenge each other massively And the reason wasn't about ego necessarily. It was about how can we improve a player? How can we get this team to win? Um, So, you know, Chalky was in that way. Having said that, the other bit, um, you know, which I got from Chalky when I looked back, was the responsibility we have as coaches to learn faster than our players and to constantly push ourselves. So, you know... In, in, in those days, it's funny, we used to have a summer camp with the under-21s, actually, um, at Notting, Uh where was it, Trent College, Tr- Trent College, I think it was. And you'd have all, you know, the Phil Keith Roaches, Graham Smiths, and all these forwards. And I used to make sure I spent time with them, so much so that they would put me in the middle of a scrummaging machine <laughs> and see how I felt, and uh, in the evening, put me into awkward positions. And it's those little ad hoc they seem ad hoc at the time, but those are, those are the things I think as young coaches, developing coaches, you know, go and ask people who know more than you and, and they, they will help you.
0: Yeah. I think that's a, a been a big takeaway for me and be very lucky in the role I've had that I can just ask lots of coaches, lots yeah. of questions and they're, they're very open because they like talking about it. And sometimes they just like talking about it when there's no, no pressure on them. I think when you are, yeah. trying to develop players and your job is on the line then it's quite scary True. Uh, if you make mistakes but it's good to talk to other coaches uh, wow. and share that knowledge because you you just by talking about it sometimes you find yourself being able to put the, the bits in place which maybe we might have been a bit muddled beforehand so I mean, one of the questions yeah. I was going to ask you before yeah uh, which we i'd sent to you beforehand is um how much has changed now i remember picking up the level two book uh that i had from my 1994 course so that shows how old i am i did (laughs) two in 1994 and i read back through it and a lot of it is hasn't there's not much difference uh now and There are some differences so what would you say reflecting back is the same and what is different um, in the last say 40 years of coaching 30 40 years
1: okay well i'll just quickly go back to chalky again Mm. and one of chalky's great strengths was his understanding of the history of rugby and the development of rugby and how other countries played the game and the reason they played it that way and, and so I'm relating that to what you've just asked, because okay. in those early 90s, when, when you did your courses and, and you have looked back at that information, the other thing about the eight people that were involved in England rugby, at the sort of level of doing the coach development and everything at the time, and we all wrote those courses, um, was that, uh, yeah, that they'd all been teachers, actually. They'd all trained as teachers. Um, and... I I suppose in many ways we were lucky that we would have done something like 15, 16 sports, 30 hours in those sports, really got into the deep sort of coaching and uh, development of those sports. And then, I mean, at Luke's, for example, you know, I took 10, 12 different coaching awards in different sports. So it it, it gives you that sort of base of understanding of different ways of coaching, um, how different sports are doing things. I mean, one of the best courses I did, sorry if I'm jumping a bit, no, was no, no, no. Um, the FA course uh, to become a, whatever, <laughs> their equivalent, I guess, of a, what was it? No, it's FA. Oh, I can't remember what it was. And it was brilliant. It was, it was by the guy um, who used to coach England under-18s and England under-20s. It was brilliant because I was putting myself into a totally different sport, seeing how they progressed and developed, um, and then able to relate some of the learnings from that into... My own sport. And he was very influential. Mind you, I have to say that, uh, you know, at 15 or 16 years old, I was playing football and rugby and <laughs> had to make a trip. So, uh, yeah. most probably physically, I should have carried on playing football. But anyway, um, going back to uh, the next bit in t- terms of how do you want me to carry on? How yeah, yeah no, no. Came? Yeah. So, what's,
0: what's changed
1: and what yeah. stayed the same? Well, fundamentally, much has stayed the same, but equally, so much has changed because. Again, in those early years, a lot of us were didactic coaches. You know, our teachers have been didactic. The guys who um, lectured us at university, by and large, um, it was a sort of tell situation. Uh, It was instruction and you did what you were told. And so we all went into schools and we told the kids what to do. But suddenly you get into that real world and you think, oh, hold on a minute. Not all children love games. Not all children uh, respond in that way. And they have lots of different learning styles. I think, are there different ways of doing it? And we had a guy at Exeter, uh, Dr. Martin Underwood. Martin actually played rugby for England. Um, and he uh, introduced us to Mostyn's uh, teaching styles yeah. and continuum of teaching styles. And, um, and that was incredibly influential at that time because it made us stop and think and so, as you're aware with then it goes from that direct instruction all the way through to a child or uh, individual um, um, creating their own learning environment and experimenting and sort of peer group uh, coaching and learning, uh, learning from each other. Now, that, along with Thorpe and Bunker at Loughborough University and their Games for Understanding, re- really hit me very early. Um, about wh- why don't we use games more to help people learn. And so even on teaching practice, I would go in and, you know, then it was you, uh, you warmed up, you did an individual skill. And if you were lucky, the kids had five minutes game at the end. And I'm thinking, oh, does this really, is this the best way? Is this the only way? And so I started experimenting um, the other way around in a way by using games. So warm up. Yeah, sure. But using games, but the games would have a theme. And um, uh, and then uh, then most would be whole part whole type stuff, actually, if I'm honest. And then I'll maybe stop, go into a more technique, let's say two V one, and then see if we could put that back into the game. And was it effective? So I, I suppose what I'm saying is that there was a sort of um, I'm talking in those early sort of remember, I started teaching in 82. Uh, So all the way through, even in those early 90s um, and then in later life. uh, I've been very influenced um, by the sort of differential learning Um, in the last few years, uh, I worked closely with Lee Jones, who coached with Eddie Jones uh, and Steve Borthwick when they beat uh, South Africa. This is for Japan. And I was working in Hong Kong and I took over Lee's job in Hong Kong. And then we brought him back and we worked very closely. And Steve Bortha would come across. And it really helped me to understand um, how they were creating very fast paced, energetic, um, chaotic conditions and environments for their players. Why were they doing that? Well, they felt that under the pressure, as you know, of international rugby, which is constantly changing. And it's a great pressure environment so how do you get players able to perform well under pressure um and so that's influenced me quite a bit and one of the guys i was mentoring on his level four um uh, did a lot of work in the area as well and that's another thing actually how um working with young coaches and mentoring coaches you're learning from them as much as you think they're learning from you you know um it's always being open to learning so anyway Um, So in in more recent times, uh, and I'm currently in in, uh, Kenya uh, coaching, and depending on the level of player and the period at which they're in their learning phase or transition phase or whatever, will depend, um, I guess, how you coach. So to answer the question in a sense, I would still use, sometimes use didactic methods. I will s- sometimes use Moston's sort of EFG stars of teaching. Uh, and I'll also use a lot of this differential learning um, type of thing as well. So,
0: yeah, so it's interesting you talk about that because I, I have in my hand and I'm showing it to the screen um, ah. Shane Pill's book Shane Pill working with Brendan Susie, Joss Rankin, and Mitch Hewitt. Uh, the spectrum of coaching styles, yeah. uh, all based on the Moston, ah, the yeah. Mostan, uh ideas, and uh, it's not. Uh, we say quite a lot. Um, old wine and new bottles. It's not as if coaching has changed no. in the sense that there's something new uh, in quite a few situations. And the interesting thing is that Moston said quite clearly that these were uh, non-verses. You're not saying. Uh, you should use a didactic approach um, as opposed to a more um, involved approach with the students you need to choose the right approach for the right situation and that's part of the skill of the teacher and uh, it's a skill of the student a student with the teacher to maybe choose the right one for them and that's the most powerful outcome so it's, it's sort of good to hear that that's that's that was being talked about then and yeah. um coaches are discovering it as they're as they're going along
1: so just, just on to, that yeah. sorry dan is that the, the, the key of course is when people do their research they tend to have to sort of categorize something like most and styles now of course there's overlap in between mm. and i suppose the big thing is raising awareness of it and um so when you actually categorise the purity of each style, this is this is me talking. Uh, mm. Others will have other thoughts. It, it, on its own, it's not quite uh, how come functional because you're taking mm. little bits of each. I would say, but there you go.
0: Yeah. So I was going to ask you a little bit about yeah. uh, what what is exactly meant by differential learning you just so uh, i just have some clarity on what that exactly
1: means yeah i most probably need some clarity as well. we, <laughs> when when i trained as a, a p teacher when i was sort of back lecturing and stuff like that we talked about differential uh, learning but that was more to do with how, how we would um, have worked with a mixed ability group but this differential uh, type of work that they're talking about now. I think it came from football originally. I think Eddie Jones and others looked at, um, uh, I think, yeah. Anyway, for, uh, in, in football and sort of how the game was analysed and then broken down. And and then it, it's very much a game-related. Um, so if you go back to Fulham Bunker, it's very much game-related coaching. And learning, so it's very specific. It's very deep. it's most probably harder to do, uh, and, uh, and to get it right. And in a sense, you're experimenting a lot. So you'll you'll be coaching a theme, but in lots of different ways, and under often very chaotic conditions. And and you'll have a team of coaches. So it's often some team coaching going on. And I may just coach something for three minutes, and then suddenly, bang, change. You're into something else, and you're having to react. So it's reactionary coaching as well and um and then you're into something else so so that by the time you actually play on a saturday <laughs> your stimulus you're sharp you're ready to prepare mm-hmm. for anything i don't know if that's explaining it well no no well, well
0: I, I think that gives a good flavor of it and it fits in with this idea that uh, it's no good in doing uh, one thing for the whole session because inevitably you'll get better if you uh, if you're passing off your left hand and that's the word and you spend an hour passing off your left hand throughout the session yeah, your performance is going to improve. It doesn't put you in the same sort of game-related situations where you mainly pass off your left hand twice in the game and four times off your right hand. And uh, you just got to be able to do it at the right time. So I'm going to ask you a different question, which is a bit of a sidewinder. Yeah. But uh, given uh, that you are uh, someone who likes a challenge, I'm going to chalky yes. white you uh, with this. So we're talking about coaching, and we might talk about coaching decision-making, Hmm. Is it sometimes, uh, and I was speaking to a a quite senior coach about this on Sunday, Hmm. do we spend too much time trying to teach every player to be a high-level decision-maker when in fact really the decision-making on a field is only made, um, the sort of strategic or tactical decisions are only really made by three or four players and the rest of the players need to concentrate on maybe more micro decisions around shall i uh, shall i make this ruck or not or do i do this 2v1 so in terms of should we play in this area of the pitch should we be focusing maybe on 9 10 15 and 8 for instance on those sorts of things and spending a bit more time because we have such limited time with the players on yeah. other things or is that is that the wrong way to approach our coaching
1: I think if you have a Tuesday, Thursday night, and Saturday game, that, that, that there's, as you say, there's a time limitation. If you are in the professional game, and you're with players like I was fortunate at Extra Chiefs, day in, day out, you you can do so much work. It, it, it's it's fantastic environment to coach in you know which i guess is why some people choose not to do international rugby and Mm. love the buzz of every saturday and um i i think for those individual players yes next job what is it i've got to do now that's the key Mm. but every player needs to understand the why the purpose what is the aim Mm. and i just uh, something just come up there um, and, and I think once every player understands the why then you can get them to do their job and focus on that now clearly there's going to be leaders in various uh, positions but every player is a decision maker all of the time You and every player is a leader but of course um, we, we, we could talk all day about this um, and why not But, uh, you know, the more players on in that team, in that squad that are happy to make decisions, the better, but also able to follow a leader's direction in the heat of battle.
0: So in a sense, we're not trying to necessarily make uh, them the actual decision maker. They just need to have a better understanding of why a decision is made and therefore be able to follow it with more energy. So if we are aiming to maybe play a little bit tighter in our play, um, then I understand why we're trying to do that in this situation, because this then achieves our goal. Um, So maybe a winger would be saying, well, I'd like to have a bit more of a ball, but I'm not going to get it now. Or alternatively, just taking the ball a bit wider, because that's where you sense there's a weakness and the prop forward who's having to charge left, right and centre and knows that, well, that's why I'm doing the extra hard yards. Yet the actual tactical decision is probably made by nine or ten on the spot and they're passing that through. Am I, am I just, um, am I wandering
1: offline there? Or no, is- I, I think what you're saying is um, that inevitably nine and ten will touch the ball more than anybody else. Therefore, they're most probably having to make more decisions than anybody else um, throughout the game. So there are are always going to be people. um, But then one of the big things in rugby is when you haven't got the ball, what are you doing? What decisions are you making? And we often forget we've got to coach that and help players through that so they can maximise their performance. Um, I mean, if you think about it, you know, in the old days, they used to say, "Oh well, if you're lucky, you know, nine and ten may have the ball in the hands for two minutes." And you think, "Well, for seventy-eight minutes, what the heck am I doing?" You know, um, but now the ball in play time so much more. Um, you know, I, I enjoyed the weekend where you're seeing prop forwards getting to the breakdown ahead of a scrum half and actually giving a a beautiful spiral, you know, spin pass or whatever. Um, to the first to, to a receiver and understanding that they've most probably been told we're trying to get a two second ruck so the defense aren't in in position so if you're the first to arrive you've got a decision to make
0: mm.
1: which may be pass <laughs> yeah so, As think, so all over. i don't know if i've answered that but no no
0: me. i think that's interesting i mean of course uh we we jumped away from your what you've done in those years so uh you oh. mentioned the extra chief no no it's fine it's uh, it's my questioning so uh, what just remind us uh, about your role at exeter chiefs because uh, that wasn't insignificant either was it
1: oh it's a fantastic uh opportunity and, and and time you know to challenge myself and uh, um you know i love working with england of course it was such an honor you know and uh, um you know, who would have thought I would end up working with England? But there you go. And um, in 2006, you know, we just won a second under-20 Grand Slam. We'd won the first under-21 Grand Slam in 2004 that England ever won. So things were going really well. And um, But then the old club came calling and there was a, an opportunity there. And I first played, played for Extra in 82. And, um, you know, it, it just felt right to go and challenge myself there uh, and we were a championship side um so that's one below the top level yeah yep. and what a challenge you know i went there and the whole aim and there was no other nothing going to stop us was to get into the premiership but more than that stay in the premiership and be successful and uh, we just sold the ground, uh, the county ground, Exeter. Um, Tony Rowe and his board of directors done a lot of research into uh, creating a business. Um, and we built a new stadium, Sandy Park, by the motorway there. And the aim was that it was going to be open 365 days a year and not just 20 Saturdays. And while well, it's incredible vision and it's amazing with change, isn't it? Um, you know a lot of people didn't want us to move from the county ground obviously um but uh, look at the chiefs now and it it just shows being brave enough sometimes and I suppose in my career it's it's been about um um being comfortable taking risks and um and pushing yourself to the extent that you know in some people's eyes they may perceive that you failed or you've done this but you know I'd rather live and give it a go. Uh, so I loved my time at Chiefs. And um, uh, really, you know, I, I came into a very sort of semi-professional environment initially because, um, so I had a ma- lovely canvas to play with. And um, Tony Rowe was incredibly supportive because within weeks, you know, I'd said, look, Tony, this isn't going to work. We're going to have to go full time rather than train, you know, seven till nine, seven to 10 on two evenings, play on a Saturday. I said, if we're going to accelerate progress and players learning and to be able, when we get in the premiership to cope, we're going to have to go fully professional. Uh, now don't get me wrong. We didn't have a lot of money, but we managed to put a squad together full of players who really had something to prove um and 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 by training uh every day uh, my view is going to take us um five years actually it took us four um because i felt physically it would take three years to get our players up to the level to be able to do well in the premiership and my first well actually my first appointment was rob baxter as my assistant coach uh so it's just, just two of us coaching amazing isn't it when you look back and um appointed uh, a guy called Paddy Anson um, as our fitness coach um, and Paddy was a former marine but he'd been a mature student ex-university and really the the, the three of us said about um, uh, a great project uh, and uh, yeah what was the question?
0: Yeah well the question was really uh, just to remind uh, mind ourselves yeah. that you'd, uh, you'd gone to the Chiefs uh, when it seriously decided to um, to move up and move up a level. And yeah. I can remember talking to you at the time about, I, I, I think there was, um, you just missed out on promotion.
1: Yeah. And, uh,
0: the frustrations you'd had about that. And of course, promotion is uh, having sort of seen it um, and talking to people, uh, working with people like Sean Holly and Andy Robertson yeah. at Bristol as well. The frustrations they went through. Yeah. Uh, every time that they came so close mm-hmm. and, you've thought that at the time they were nailed on uh, to go up, but right at the end, for various reasons, it, it didn't happen. And yeah. careers are won and lost, or not careers are won and lost, but careers yeah. are finished on just one game, one kick. I mean, how, how does that feel as a coach to be sitting in the yeah. in the stand knowing, hmm, I don't think my contract's going to be renewed if this guy doesn't uh, slot this penalty?
1: yeah no what a great question that is I, I i suppose the answer is don't go into it um if, if you don't if you don't accept that that's the reality of it um you know and uh you know it's uh, it's a harsh world because it's there's it's a business and businesses are harsh and they move people on on a regular basis i think um you know, I'll admit, in my case, um, you know, we came second two years running, and at the, that time, we were competing against the side that came down, who obviously had more money than we did. Um, and when I, I actually lost my job with about with a few games to go, and we still have, could have got promoted, unbelievably, um, so it can be harsh. And I have to admit, um, on a, on a personal level, wow, it smashed me. It uh, it really knocked me back because you know for three years and actually for a lot of a lot of my life since 1982 uh, I've been totally interested in extra chiefs and so yeah um that took me a while to get over if I'm honest um but and I think it's not uh it's uh reading some
0: other people's work I mean Catherine Spencer's book um um, I'm going to misquote it: "Mud, mascara, and more yes. or something yeah. like that. Yeah, she talks about how hard it was for her to celebrate England winning yes. the World Cup, and that she admitted that is fantastic because I think a lot of coaches go through that. They they mm-hmm. they put their heart and soul into a club, and for one reason or another, it doesn't work out, and then it's extremely hard to celebrate the success that they might then have because of. The, the pain that you're still feeling and
1: uh, well, I never that. felt that Dan mm. um, I love the club so much mm. and the people involved in it and put so much of my heart and soul and life into it mm. in a sense it it, it, it <laughs> maybe on a personal level you sort of feel well you've had a small part to play and that little part you played mm. was worthwhile and you know, I like all the people there so much. Um, You know, one of the things um, we have at the club is um, underneath our badge, it's Semper Fidelis and that means forever faithful, but I turned that into always loyal and in our changing room, there's a plaque still there, Mm -hmm. always loyal and um, in my case, always loyal and and love seeing them do well. Mm. And You know, um, I mentored Rob on his level four, um, as I may have said, we worked really well for three years. Uh, I realized very early that he had real potential. He's as good as any of the international coaches I'd worked with. Um, and, you know, he was actually, initially, he was coaching Ex University as well to learn his craft uh, as a coach and experiment. And so, no, for me, um, that, it's not what you said. Yeah. It's actually, oh, it's sadness. Yeah, involved. I'll be honest, um, but no, I'm, I'm pleased it to see him do well.
0: Well, no, that, and that's good. I mean, I suppose uh, I wasn't suggesting that. Uh, no. I'm, not, I'm not trying to dig myself out of this one. It sounds like no, no, I am, no, no. No, uh, no. but you can understand why it is difficult when, yeah. when coaches coaches leave jobs, and that that is difficult. Uh, so, given let's let's talk a bit about Rob or yes. the qualities that Rob's got. Not not necessarily specifically. Uh, he's had a lot of success. Uh, what sort of things as does Rob Baxter or people like Rob Baxter bring that we can then say, well, these are things that we can, these are behaviours or uh, methods that are worth replicating in our own coaching? And given that everyone's an individual, what sort of things in particular makes Rob stand out?
1: Well, first and foremost, um, uh, it is his work ethic. You know, he's very driven. I mean, that man spends hours um, trying to help the players get better mm-hmm. and, and getting the team to win, you know. So in those early days, I said to Tony, look, could we get some electric in, in, in the team bus? So on away games, you know, we could start our analysis, um, you know, on the coach journey back, which, 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 which we did. And Rob, still to this day, actually, um, prefers to do a lot of the analysis himself because yeah, he, that, yeah. he believes, and I think he's absolutely right, that when he looks in a player's face and they have a one-to-one, they know that he knows and he's done the work yeah. and that he is at, you know, is helping them to achieve what they need to achieve, um, for example. So that, that work ethic is absolutely immense. Of course, he um, he has expertise in his DNA, you know this is somebody who captained the team for 10 years, you know. Um, so those are massive motivations, but he's also very bright, very intelligent, and um, totally instinctively understands people and how to get the best out of people. Um, so I would say he's very self aware, great awareness of others, um, and also, um, He's a leader, natural leader. And the, the other bit to it, I think, is that ability to get the best out of the coaches that he's appointed. Um, yeah. So uh, on the field of play, in terms of the technical stuff with players, very knowledgeable, very knowledgeable. Um, I, I think in the early days, um, you know, there was some, you know... We, we, we'd all had four years teacher training, Rob mm-hmm. had him. you know, so there were some pedagogical bits and pieces that he had to sort of play around with and work out in terms to maximize the sort of uh, learning that he was working with. But no, no, I mean, he's, you know, crumbs. He's one of the best, hmm. one of the best five, six, seven, eight coaches in the world yeah. now, in my humble opinion.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I, one wonders, uh, given what you've said about him, whether. If England came knocking for the job, whether he would he would actually want to want to do that uh, because of not because he wants to be not be uncomfortable, but because maybe Exeter is is the place which suits him and they and and vice versa. So let's just move on now. You so uh, you then moved out to Hong Kong, yeah, um, and well, I was actually
1: yeah
0: well, uh, eventually I think. Um, so just to sort of. You left Extra Chiefs, and then what happened next?
1: Yeah, uh, sounds like this is the Pete Druitt story, but... Yeah, actually, well, it is the Pete Druitt story. Yeah. <laughs> well, funny enough, and this is linked to it. Um, obviously, when I was uh, coaching and lecturing in those early days, I also did a master's, and it was in innovation and change. And, and the only reason I mentioned that is because I think that got me thinking and uh, learning about change and how to create change and behaviours and things like that and then sort of linked to this is when I lost my job at Chiefs, I actually did three or four different sort of jobs and I set up a company called Perform to Excel Um, but I worked for a company called McKinney Rogers so I went all around the world um, doing sort of these high performing team workshops and looking at strategy and leadership and so I learned a lot from them, they were all former marines, these guys and obviously I'd been in elite sport so again, that helped me to keep learning, if yeah. that makes sense. And then, and th- this is interesting, yeah, I got the job in Hong Kong as, what do they call it? Um, uh, uh, elite Coach Development Manager or something. No, no, I can't remember, something like that. Yeah. And, uh, and then obviously I was doing a lot of coaching up there. But the funny thing in rugby is we all know each other. And when I was with England 21s, uh, we were in the World Cup in South Africa, or maybe in under-19s, can't remember. And Di Reese uh, of Wales, who coached mm-hmm. Wales, as you know, throughout the age grades. Um, well, we, we became friends on these trips. And uh, lo and behold, all these years later, <laughs> one of those mates you make offers you a job. Lee Jones had gone out to uh, Japan with Eddie, and, and, and I got his job and had three fantastic years out there. And I only came back, actually, because sadly, my wife's mother got very ill. So I had to come back. But yeah, but what a great experience. Asia um, uh, and going back to coaching and um, coaching styles and different things, you you, you again had to really think about how you're coaching in order to help these players uh, perform. So when you're with uh,
0: players who may not have had the enormous rugby background that, say, you would maybe say in the UK, when you're in front of them, how, what do you what do you do differently to help them see the game in, in the right way? Because uh, I, I mean, I find this challenge, uh, especially when I'm working with uh, the University of Bristol girls teams. I've got some girls who've played rugby since... Uh, for a very long time. Their parents take them to rugby matches. And I've got other girls who are trying rugby for the first time and trying to give them a sense of the game is a real challenge. So what what do you do differently to help those players who are a little bit behind the curve in terms of their total game understanding?
1: Yeah, but you see, interestingly, I wouldn't say they are. Because incredibly, um, rugby in Hong Kong has been at the heart of young people's sport, experience, sporting experience, for many, many years. Right. So they have an amazing youth program in all the clubs. It's amazing. On a Sunday morning, there are kids everywhere. It, 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 you know, um, and so actually, they, they they get a fantastic introduction to the game. Right. Um, and women's rugby, um, the thing that hit me about women's rugby that it was there was equality in terms of access to the game, and also in terms of funding of the game, an opportunity um, with throwing the pathway and to play international rugby. So, you know, obviously um, Sevens has been a big part of mm. Hong Kong. Um, now, having said all that, the level at which they play on a regular basis may not be the same level as let's say, well, let's say the premiership in UK, mm. but it is a very good level. It is a very good level. Um, and the other really exciting thing about Hong Kong is you've got players from all over the world, South Africa, Argentina, France, Australia, New Zealand, uh, UK. So, so as a coach developer or whatever you want to call it, um, that was brilliant because you could get all these different ideas and experiences and, and it becomes a real honeypot. And uh, I loved it for, for those reasons. Yeah. So um,
0: I suppose um, I'm going to challenge you then, given that these players did have a good background. um, You're working as a rugby world consultant now, uh, and uh, you're you're going to be flying out to Kenya very soon. So this pod will probably come out when you're in uh, Kenya. Um, We do come across players who are maybe athletically able, but lacking rugby knowledge. Where do, where do you start to just get them somewhere up to speed?
1: OK, well, again, it goes back a little bit to what we talked about earlier. Um, I, I, I think through, through the principles of play and the right. principles of the game, I think, that, you know, help them to understand the why quite early. Um, so understand or coach through the principles, the old principles, <laughs> which would be, going you know, go forward continuity support pressure whatever that may seem well that sounds a bit basic but actually uh, i found that pretty useful and but then it's having knowledge of that so that throughout your coaching even when you're doing using games or, or working on technical bits and pieces there's there's a reason why they're doing something so it's continuous now visually they may need to watch some rugby um, and sort of try and get that others may need to read about it others need to be physically put into position and so part of our job is to understand the learner how are they best going to learn um and i'm going maybe going around it a little bit but um so make it quite simple initially because actually when you've got some of these young athletes and you say, all you've got to do is go as fast as you can and run forward. That's about it, really.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we say with the girls, it's uh, run forward, pass backwards for the less, less experienced ones. And uh, uh, I mean, that's that's the challenge of the game is uh, the fact that the ball has to go backwards. And that's, I, th- I sideways. think, uh, well, si- sideways. I mean, it's obviously <laughs> the, the physics of it that uh, goes, Yeah. it does, it, it goes <laughs> goes forwards. And I, I've... Uh, that, that is a challenge uh, yeah, for people is. who are not necessarily used to an invasion game where you are moving forward yeah. and the ball doesn't move forward with you at the same time. So yeah. just, no, um, sorry, yeah, I was going to say, uh, I mean, there's, there's lots of things we could obviously, we could talk a long time about. So I just want to sort of finish up with just talking a little bit about your role in Kenya. Yes. So you're going out with uh, rugby world as a consultant. So you are obviously going out there with a shirt and tie and a clipboard. Uh, to do good work out in Kenya well, what are you actually doing what does the consultant really do when they're with uh with these guys, or guys yeah guys? okay
1: so I mean World Rugby has a, has a program uh and has enough you know a number of people like me who will go into so Craig White for example worked with Uruguay um you know, prior to the last World Cup, uh, Calvin Morris uh, works, and actually sort of goes in, chats with Romania, Spain, in fact, the, the team I worked with for two years, Georgia, um, and now and suddenly me, uh, sort of going into Kenya. Now, um, first and foremost, it is um, to help accelerate the coaching and uh, management of the, all, all all the teams, men's and women's sevens, 15s, and let's say under 20s. So that, that that's that broad role. Um, it, it's then to sort of look underneath that and understand how can you be most valuable to this country in this specific time? Now, one of the things World Rugby have asked is for me to see whether we can help Kenya qualify for the World Cup. And they've got World Cup qualifiers in July, And so what we've been trying to do is see the players more often, get more regular high-level competition for them, um, and massive work on their strength and conditioning. So we were lucky last October, November, to have four big games in South Africa. And we went from almost zero to doing really well within a month, just by being together for a long time. Mm. Um, uh, and so we're, we're, we're trying to replicate that now between now and, and July. Not going to be easy because um, uh, our, our players are at best, um, well, at best, semi-pro. Whatever mm. but, you know. Um, Sevens, by the way, is fully professional now mm. in, in, in Kenya. Um, so we've got to accelerate that progress. And so it's a heck of a challenge, but it's a great old challenge. And um, Uh, yeah and so I guess uh, you know part of my role has been trying to um, create the conditions an environment which will allow us to perform at a higher level
0: and uh, in terms of uh, technical and tactical I mean what what sort of things are you having to focus on in particular I mean uh, inevitably strength and conditioning is going to be a big part of that but when you're actually with the players and you're working on catch, pass, contact, yeah. all that sort of thing. What, what sort of things are you focusing on most and how are you getting, getting well,
1: there? Yeah. Well, no, I, the, the same as you would with an under 11s team, you know, we we've gone right back to basics on catch, pass, uh, things like catching a high ball. Um, uh, you know, um, uh, lines of running. Um, uh ball presentation clear out it, it's going back to basics and doing them well doing them well repetitive and putting it under more and more pressure creating game scenarios as well uh, that we talked about earlier those pressure type games um so yeah and and actually getting the players to understand um that they have work ons to go away and practice and come back almost do homework um uh so we've done a lot a lot of that uh then in terms of strategy and leadership just working very closely with the coaches at the end of the day the kenyan coaches i'm working with this is their life and they will mm. be there for a long time you know and uh, i'd love to be there for a long time but mm. i may not be so it's important that they develop and I, I, you know the, the head coach of the simbers our 15s team is the head coach i happen to be somebody who's sitting on his shoulder whispering in his ear mm. and then it's quite obvious or i make it obvious that he allows me to then take over a session or to lead a session or whatever it happens to be does that make sense
0: no, no it makes sense yeah I, and i think the important thing there is uh that you you're not coming in to make a massive change you're there to help steer help the, the coaching staff as you say be able to continue coaching once you've left without being completely swamped by you've got to do this, you've got to do that. It's a, it's a support supporting role, as opposed to um, changing the, changing the direction role.
1: Yeah. And and don't forget, you know, a lot, a lot of, a lot of these coaches are are world rugby level three coaches, you know, they've, they've um, done done a lot of work. They're really trying to improve themselves, you know, and, uh, highly capable, intelligent guys. And, uh, um, you know, it was an absolute joy to work with them actually, I'm loving it and uh, again, I'm learning
0: Good, so, well, Pete, what we'll need to do then is uh, have a, um, um, a part two when you when you come back from Kenya to see, see how it's gone I mean, uh, inevitably some of the success will be measured on whether they, they qualify but the more yeah. success will be on whether the, the programmes are in place for the future and yes. the future players so Pete, thank you very much for uh, joining us uh, before you you fly off to um, the southern hemisphere, um, and uh, it's just been really enjoyable. Great, always good to catch up, um, catch up um, periodically over, over the years. Um, you don't look too different to um, <laughs> when I first you knew you. Um, maybe our hair's changed a little bit since uh, since then. <laughs> At least um, you got
1: some.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very kind. It's all very grey though. Very grey. Uh, so. Thanks very much to, to Pete Pleasure for um, to joining us. Um, this is a Rugby Coach Weekly podcast. If you want to find out more about uh, Pete and what he's done and um, more about podcasts, visit rugbycoachweekly.net and click on the podcast button. So uh, all it's uh, left for me to say is thanks, Pete, for your time. Pleasure, Dan. Great to see you. Good luck. And thank you see very you. much. And. Um, uh good luck to everybody else and we'll speak with you soon.
1: Thanks for Thank listening so to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. If you want to hear more podcasts, head over to rugbycoachweekly.net and click on the blogs tab to catch up on any episodes you've missed. We look forward to speaking to you again soon with more insights from coaches and experts from the world of rugby, sport and learning.